Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to his friends about Jesus. How is your life? Happy summer. All right, so when we left off last time, there were some hardcore Pharisee Christians, and I'm not using that term as a metaphor for some super obedient Christian. Uh, Basically, outside of the people Paul has converted, and those guys are hundreds of miles away from ground zero for Christianity, meaning Jerusalem, everybody who is Christian is Jewish. Now, usually from the outside, we look at Jews in the New Testament as all basically the same. But there are a lot of types of Jews at the time, as many types of Jews then as there are Christians now, you know, like Latter-day Saints, Catholics, Baptists, Evangelicals. You feel me? And all these Jews back then, they, they view things a little bit differently, just like Catholics and Baptists, both Christians would view things differently. Now, there have been some Pharisees who have joined the Christ movement, which to me says a lot about how compelling Jesus's resurrection and the witnesses of this event must have been. Anyway, these hardcore Pharisaical Jews, um, of whom Jesus's little brother James is one of them, and again, crazy from everything we can tell, Jesus's own brother didn't believe in him until he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Anyway, these Pharisees Christians don't see Jesus now as destroying Judaism, but rather reaffirming him and reaffirming Judaism. Therefore, they're totally cool with more people following Jesus, but they are like, to really follow Jesus, you need to follow Jesus. And that means fulfilling all the laws that he laid out in the Old Testament. The big one being circumcision. Now, this is a big deal on a lot of levels. One, because it's circumcision and it's not something most people want to do to their own grown-up selves. And two, because to Pharisee Christians, this is the ultimate symbol of entering into a covenant relationship with God. We think temple, they think circumcision. But Paul argues, listen, We have tried to live the outer practices outlined in the Old Testament uh, for hundreds of years, including circumcision, and it hasn't really done much for us. And he's like, you know what is much more important than circumcision? The Holy Ghost! And all the Gentiles I've taught already have received the Holy Ghost, and that is evidenced in how they act and in how they're transformed. So, As they talk through all of this, and it's interesting that two of the most influential people on this leadership council about circumcision, James and Paul, are not original disciples of Jesus or the apostles. Both were, in fact, from what we can tell, pretty antagonistic uh, to the whole movement. Anyway, as they go through this council, James, who is a Pharisee and hardcore obedient Jew, um, and Paul, and I, I kind of, uh, he, he says basically, Paul, I basically see where you're coming from. And I agree the Holy Ghost is the more, most important aspect. So let's say this kind of to help everyone tell new members not to mess around with pagan worship services and ask them to obey a couple dietary laws that most Jews find especially repugnant if they're broken. And that will help us have a unified Gentile Jew congregation. And that's that. So you got the Pharisaical Jews asking people to be circumcised. Paul being like, the Holy Ghost is what's important. James is like, let's just meet in the middle. You don't have to be circumcised. Just believe in Jesus. Don't worship other gods. 
and um, and live a couple dietary restrictions to make it easier on Jews to come together. So after the conference, they write up a memo and send two guys named Judas and Silas from Jerusalem with um, Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. Uh, basically, they're, they're there to say, hey, this is a legit message. This isn't Paul just making crap up. This comes from James in Jerusalem. So you know he's hardcore. So this message is acceptable to all you Jewish Christians, especially you hardcore circumcisers here. So once up in Antioch, it seems that Judah says his piece about the memo and then goes back to Jerusalem. But Silas seems to be really impressed with the, the vibrant Christian scene that is in Antioch. He's impressed with how dynamic the growth is there. So he decides to stay for a bit. And after he's there for a little while, Paul and Barnabas decide that they need to go back and check on all the people they helped baptize on their first mission throughout modern day Turkey. And Barnabas says, let's take my cousin John Mark with us. And Paul is like, are you kidding me? That jerk ditched us when we had barely started. It, and he, he made it so much more difficult for us. Hard pass. John Mark can stay here. And honestly, they have a huge blowout between Paul and Barnabas over this. And these are very much human beings. And instead of reconciling, Barnabas says, fine, I'll take John Mark with me. And Paul's like, well, I'm not going with John Mark. And so instead, he takes this new guy, Silas, who has just traveled up from uh, Jerusalem. Kind of a big deal for this guy being like, yeah, I came up to Antioch. Why not go to Turkey? So they start by going around the regions uh, uh, around Antioch, and then they travel up to Derby, which is a city they preached in on their first mission. It's a town in southern Turkey. And while he's up there in that area, Paul meets a guy named Timothy. Now, Timothy's dad is Greek and his mom is a Jewess. And Timothy is a Christian. And apparently, Timothy is an exceptional Christian because after meeting him, Paul wants Timothy to join him on this second missionary journey. But since Timothy's dad is Greek, Timothy has never been circumcised. And you can imagine how that conversation went between Timothy's parents after Timothy was born. And Timothy's dad's like, you want to cut off what? No, heck no. Nope, nope, nope. So Timothy hasn't been circumcised. And, and remember, Paul has, is on record saying he cares nothing about circumcision as a way to link to God for salvation. He, he just got done arguing passionately against the need to, for circumcision. And so circumcision and Timothy not being circumcised is not at all a barrier for Paul when it comes to Timothy's missionary service. So when Timothy joins him on this mission, the first thing Paul does is circumcise him. What? Yeah, you heard me right. Paul, the guy who doesn't believe in circumcision as a, as a path to salvation, circumcises Timothy. Weird, right? Yeah, I'm with you. But here, for Paul, it's not about salvation, but on impact. Paul sees that although Timothy might not have a problem preaching to Gentiles, Jews will not listen to a message about the Messiah from someone who is uncircumcised. So Timothy does what he needs to do in order to maximize his impact. That's some dedication right there. 
and here we kind of see that there's definitely a difference between doctrine and culture, uh, and especially the way Paul sees it. And it makes me wonder personally if there's any cultural things in the church that we treat like doctrine uh, when we try to get other people to join our, our church and our movement. Are there things that don't matter as much as we think they matter that if we just dropped or made less of a big deal about, they would open the door to someone to partake in Jesus's goodness? Maybe it would be a good idea for us just to ask, does this really matter? And be willing like Paul to be situationally flexible when focus- and focused on outcomes and the most important things rather than details and tradition. Anyways, following Timothy's circumcision, they take off, and as usual, Luke, who's writing the account, tells you about every rest stop they made with the geographic precision. I thought about taking you through each one, each pit stop, but I don't think it even matters. It does, though, show that Luke is trying to report details with precision, and it lets you look at a map and see where, where their trip is. So maybe you can just look, do that. Go look at the map. So in time, they get to a city called Philippi. And this is in the, the northeast Greece. And the Jews in Philippi don't have sufficient resources, apparently, for a synagogue. So they meet at the river, which is a thing, apparently. I don't know if you remember way back in Ezekiel, when he starts his first vision, He's praying by a river. It's a pretty regular thing if Jews don't have a circum- uh, circumcision. Look at me. <laughs> Synagogue, not circumcision. Oh, mercy. That they'll meet by a river. So he's in Philippi. They go down to the river and they meet some people who are interested in their message about Jesus, including a woman named Lydia, who is a well-off merchant. And she has a, a big enough place that she offers these guys to some hospitality and says that they can stay in her house. So they're staying in Lydia's house and they're traveling through town to preach at different locations. And as they travel through town again and again, there is this slave girl who it says is possessed by a spirit of divination. Now, the original Greek says she had the spirit of Python. What in the world does that mean? Well, Python was a big old snake. You knew that, but this, this way back in mythology, it's a big old snake uh, believed to be a child of Gaia, a child of the earth, right? We're talking back in Greek mythology. And this snake, P- Python, would give oracles or prophecies about the future from Delphi. Now, Apollo killed Python And then basically Apollo seems to have appropriated the sacred space where the the snake was giving oracles. I know this is weird to you, but anyways, this is the history, right? And so now after Apollo kills pythons, instead of a snake giving a prophecy, it's a a woman, usually a, a priestess here. She would go into a hallucinatory trance when somebody asks her about the future chew leaves from a laurel tree or inhale its fumes going into this uh, prophetic-induced trance. Then she would speak in tongues, and the priest there would interpret it, and people would leave happy because they were made sure about their question. However, usually she would pronounce her prophecy in highly ambiguous verse, so regardless of what she said, it would come true. Anyways, this slave girl 
is not in the sacred space of Python back in Delphi, but seems to have some talent for pronouncing oracles. And so her owners, remember she is a slave, are using her pronunciations to gain profit. So that's what they mean when it says that she has the spirit of Python. That's the history on that. So every day when Paul and Silas are walking through Philippi, this girl calls out from the market where she works. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which shew unto us the way of salvation. She does this several days. Paul finally is grieved by this sick of it and turns to the girl and says, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour of that girl. What do we make of this? Number one, I don't know if I can explain everything that's going on here. I just don't even know if there's enough context to this story. And we would be guessing on most if we tried to say, like if we say that this girl was possessed or trained or what, I just don't know that there's enough here. But I think there are at least two interesting conclusions we can make. First, Paul isn't interested in witnesses like this. Jesus similarly doesn't take witnesses from demons. I don't know quite what that means for us, but I, but maybe think on it. Um, second, I think this part is way more valuable for us today. It's this fact that we all have this desire to be certain. We want to know what should I do. We want to be sure. I hear so many Latter-day Saints praying, like, I just want to know if this is the right choice. We conceptualize life very much binary, ones and zeros. Every step we take is either right or wrong, black or white. If only I could be sure, we'd feel so much more confident moving forward. But Paul eradicates this sureness by casting out this demon, apparently, from this girl. And let's be real, cryptic oracles aren't very certain anyway, but I would argue in casting out this spear of Python, he's casting out certainty. Certainty is not the first principle of the gospel. Faith is the first principle of the gospel. And faith is inherently uncertain. Even when we feel confident about things like the resurrection, we'll still be like walking in a fog in life. I need you to accept this. We crave surety and certainty because it feels safe. But our God does not operate that way. He's not all about you feeling safe. And notice when you find someone shoving God in a box and trying to to make God follow their rules of behavior, that is not God. That is a human trying to feel safe in the chaos. God, God uses chaos all the time to create. So I'm asking you, accept a little bit this chaos, accept uncertainty and replace the sureness that you feel like you should feel with trust and faith. You would be better served with being comfortable with uncertainty than you would trying to be sure. I know that's hard. But that's what Jesus is asking us. And I think that's in part what Paul is teaching us. 
Back to the story, though, the slave girl can't give prophecies anymore. And I'm really unclear on the whole reason. I don't get it. Uh, And again, I'm saying without sufficient context, I think we're just guessing. But the result is she can't divine the future and her owners can't make money off her in the same way. So they they stir up the ruffians in the city saying that Paul and Silas are anti-Roman lawbreakers. And the mob gets a bit crazy. They go grab Paul and Silas. I don't know how Timothy and Luke escape, but they do. And then the town magistrates get caught up in the frenzy, rip Paul and Silas's clothes right off there in public, and they are whipped. Oh, they're beat. They're whipped till they bleed. Nothing in your comfortable suburban existence comes close to comparing, I'm telling you. Then they're put in a dungeon with their feet stretched out in a stockade, uncomfortable and cramped, unable to lay on their backs because they're whipped bloody but likely forced to lay because of the way their feet are bound in one spot. And you know what they do? They sing praises to God. That is agency. That's not safety. That's not security. But it is freedom. Paul is demonstrating a very different form of liberation from the one your natural man wants. And while they're there singing praises, there's a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, if Peter is in this jail, yoink, he's gonzo. He's done it more than once. But the dungeon master seeing the problem uh, is about to commit suicide because he failed at his job and things are going to be terrible for him. But Paul, when he sees this, is like, hey, 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 don't commit suicide. We're still here. Don't do it. And there is something in the interaction that convinces the jailkeeper that these are emissaries of divinity. And so the jailkeeper comes and kneels before Paul and Barnabas and says, excuse me, Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that thou may be saved, thou and thy house. What is our message? The Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him. Don't get too far off from the weeds from that. So then the the prison keeper washes their wounds, gives them food, listens to their message, and is baptized. And by the time the morning comes, the magistrates to the city, having no real reason to keep Paul and Silas in jail, send a message to release them. But Paul has said, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. Both he and Silas apparently are Roman citizens and have cast us into prison, and now they are trying to send us out the back door like nothing happened? Heck no! They can come in person and get us out. Now, this is a big deal. You can beat the crap out of your random Jew with no consequence. But to punish a Roman citizen with no trial? That's bad. And there can be serious repercussions. Once they find out that Paul and Silas are Romans, the magistrates are nothing but helpful, but still implore Paul and Silas to leave the city. What do we take from this story? Uh, Suffering sucks. But this is going to be one of the places where the church experiences the most governmental stableness. What I mean by this is that Paul takes this unnecessary beating in 50 AD. And um, when he writes to the Philippians about 15 years later, there's no government persecution there, which is very unlike the other places they go. Him taking a beating leads to the church growing. 
I just want you to watch how Paul uses each situation. We would label the situations good or bad, desirable or undesirable, comfortable and uncomfortable. But Paul just sees opportunities. If you want to really be free, stop worrying so much whether or not you like a situation and look about how you can live a situation. So even uh, once they're out of jail, they leave Philippi and they travel west and they end up in a town called Thessalonica uh, where they go to the synagogue for the first uh, three straight Sabbath days and they preach from the scriptures that the promised Messiah, the promised true king and high priest is actually meant from the scriptures to suffer to the point of death and that the true liberation of this Messiah came from him not only dying, but being raised from the dead. It's a profoundly contradictory message than they have been preaching, what people have been preaching about the Messiah. It's a stunning message. It's a shocking message that that goes against thousands of years of practice and tradition. And like normal, some believe, especially women in the neighborhood of Thessalonica, and some don't. They're like, you're crazy. Now, because he is offending tradition and he is going against the way things have always been and the way they have always done things, there are some who, who just like things just the way they are and they're really angry. And they feed the flames of some of the hotheads who get a mob together and they attack Jason's house where Paul and Silas and the other missionaries are staying. But they don't catch Paul and Silas because the believers knowing what's coming sneak them out to a neighboring city called Berea. And there Paul starts preaching again. But once um, the, the Jews who like how things have always been from Thessalonica find out that they're still preaching in Berea, they come up and start fighting with Paul up in Berea too. Now, Paul is self-aware enough to know that he is a good bit of this problem. He is a powerful preacher, but he's also a bit of a hothead and a lightning rod. So he leaves Berea and takes off by boat down to southern Greece to Athens, and he leaves Silas and Timothy up in Berea to build up the church. Now, once in Athens, Paul starts doing Paul things. He starts teaching about Jesus and Jesus' resurrection, And he comes across some Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who find his teaching strange and want to know more. Now, just for a minute, let's sidebar here about the people he's talking to. Epicureanism and Stoicism aren't religions. They're philosophies of life, how you can get the most out of life. And honestly, I think we could all benefit from what they have to offer. Stoics teach us to get comfortable with uncomfortable things, to be able to take difficult situations and handle them with no drama. Honestly, as much as you say you're done with drama, most of you are addicted to drama and create situations that feed this beast. So like, I think we could learn from this idea of instead of arguing, fighting, resisting, to just get comfortable with discomfort and solve it that way. Epicureans, on the other hand, teach us to find good things in life and to enjoy them. So let's do what they're telling us. Let's get more comfortable and let's enjoy life. Um, And let's just follow it. Sounds like a win to me. 
But these philosophers are finding it strange that Paul is preaching about the resurrection because most of Greek philosophy finds physicality to be a limiting factor in life, and they long to move beyond it into pure spirituality. So these philosophers take Paul and bring him to a place called Areopagus. The Areopagus means Ares Hill. It's a prominent rock outcropping located in the northwest of the Acropolis there in Athens. And it's called Ares Hill because the war god Ares was supposed to have been tried on that rock by the other gods for the murder of Poseidon's son. So in Paul's time, it's used as a place to try cases or to hear cases of one, two things. One, deliberate deliberate homicide or two, religious matters. Now, Paul hasn't committed homicide, but this is a religious matter, a religious trial, if you will. Um, And so he's brought to this place and they they begin by saying, we want to know about this new doctrine that thou teachest. So then Paul stands up on the mist of Mars Hill. And I know we said it was Ares Hill before, but it still is Ares Hill. It's just now that the Romans rule everything instead of the Greek war god Ares is the Roman war god Mars, same diff, right? So in Mars Hill, Ares Hill, same diff. And honestly, Luke is just really showing that this is reportage rather than fiction. Like he's not making it up. So they say, we want to know about this new doctrine. So Paul stands up and he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around your city and looked carefully at your objects of worship. And I I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm about to proclaim to you. This is not rude. Like he is being super clever and hooking them into his sermon. He's like, you want to like worship everything and be careful. But I'm here to tell you that the God that made the world The God that made everything in this world is Lord. He is ruler of heaven and earth. And this God isn't dwelling in temples made with hands. And actually, what Paul's teaching here is is a fairly new idea for a Jew to a certain extent. Up to this point, up to the point of Pentecost, Jews were looking for God to come to his temple for the Shekinah, his pillar of fire, his symbol of his presence to rest in his temple. But this whole view has been changed with the Pentecost where God's spirit came into people. And so Paul's teaching that same thing, emphasizing the importance of the Holy Ghost. And he says, God isn't worshiped with men's hands. He doesn't need anything. He's the one that gives us everything. He made all blood. He made the blood. He made, sorry. He hath made of one blood all nations. It's this beautiful sentiment. He's like, I'm Jewish, you're Greek, but we're one nation under God, one, one uh, kingdom under him. And, and God has determined the times. He's appointed the bounds for your habitation. God knows you and he knows where he puts you. And, and he, he says he, God wants you to feel after him. God wants you to find him. And God's not far from any one of us. It's, 
it's such a beautiful preaching, right? He's like, God created everything. He created you. He knows you. We are his offspring. And, and he's teaching it in a very appropriate way to a bunch of people that believe in demigods like Hercules. But he's saying it's not an exclusive group like Hercules. You are the children of God. You are the offspring of God. And if we're offspring of God, we shouldn't be thinking of God like gold or silver. We, we, we should, shouldn't be thinking of God as statues. God in the past, is com God is commanding you to change, to go beyond this concept and come into him. And he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Wherefore, he hath given assurance unto all men in that he has raised them from the dead. And he's saying, hey, listen, one day you're going to come back to life. They don't believe this, this is a radical message. And he's like, and God is going to help you. He's going to judge with righteousness. He's going to look at what you need and provide a, a way forward. And that's his message. He's saying, hey, listen, here's what I'm about. You are really a child of God. God knows where he puts you and he's wanting to help you take this next step and grow. And when they heard it, some listened and some don't. Um, that's just kind of how it is. And there's even one guy who was kind of a judge uh, at this, this religious hearing, Dionysius. He becomes uh, the first bishop of Athens after Paul leaves. He becomes a major leader in the church after hearing Paul's expression that we are children of God and God wants to lift us and help us. A after teaching in Athens for a bit, he goes off to another section of Greece called Corinth. It, this is west of Athens. It's the big island at the south of Greece. And when he's there, he finds a, a, a Jew, because he always starts preaching out to Jews, named Aquila, born in Pontus. This basically means uh, they're an immigrant from a region in northern Turkey, way up bordering by the Black Sea. And Paul has this interesting pattern of finding success with immigrants who need a community, right? And Pontus is lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. We'll talk more about that in the book of Romans. Um, so it's not just that this guy Pontus is an immigrant, but he has had to move again because of difficult circumstances and needs some peace. Like if we really want to be effective in spreading this message, like we need to go to those who and focus our energy on those who are willing to listen. And as Paul meets them, becomes friends with them, they believe in him. Uh, he starts living with them. He's of the same occupation. They're both tent makers, which makes pretty good money because, you know, Roman army needing tents and stuff. And he goes out and after he's, he's done with working and works on his life mission, which is to preach about Jesus, he goes to the synagogue. And finally, after a while, Silas and Timothy, who were up in Berea, meet him down. And they join in and talk about Jesus is the Christ uh, and his resurrection. And Corinth seems really like a, a good place to, to teach and they don't hit on too arduous of persecution up front. So they stay there actually for a year and a half teaching. But 
nothing gold can last. Finally, the, some of the Jews have had enough. They riot. They grab Paul and they take him to the city leader and say, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. They're always looking for a way to accuse him. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio, he's the city leader, says to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or even some felony, some serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But you're bringing him to me about questions, about words and names in your own law. Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And he drives them off. Then the crowd that hears these things takes Sosthenes. He's one of the leaders of the Jews who's spurring up this persecution. They take him and they beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio is like, whatever, dude. If you wanted to get your friend beat, Paul beat, that's on you, man. You reap what you sow. So Paul stays there in Corinth a good little while and then decides to, to go back home uh, to Antioch. Not like his original hometown of Tarsus, but Antioch has become like his real Christian home. It's his new, it's his new home place. And he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And notice her name is written first. This is not normal. It seems to imply her status and importance in the work. Um. And that, that's, that's really valuable. You're going to notice Paul over and over uses women in the, the service, in the preaching, in the delivering of messages. And Priscilla seems to want, be one of these really valuable messengers. This is not the idea or tone we sometimes get from the scriptures. And you, you, but if you're paying attention, it's there. And it's kind of crazy to me that, that Priscilla and Aquila are just willing to move again, right? And Paul at this point is keeping a vow. We'll hear more about this head shaving vow later. Um, most likely it's a Nazarite, Nazarite vow because that's the only one that involves shaving your head. Usually you shave your head at the start of the vow and then you shave at the end of the vow and the hair is offered as a peace offering to God. Um, and so in addition to shaving your head, you would usually stay away from wine. You'd also stay away from grapes. My wife is always staying away from grapes. And um, then you would stay away from any contact with dead bodies. It's kind of like supercharged fasting, like fasting on steroids kind of deal. Not that you're going hungry all this time. It's just different ways to show your devotion to God. Now, there are some Nazarites for life. This is not Jesus uh, of Nazareth. That's a city. Uh, the, this is a Nazarite vow. You get like guys like Samson. He breaks it all the time. Um, John the Baptist is probably a Nazarite for life in some way. But uh, this is only a temporary vow, right? So they travel over to Ephesus. Uh, he actually leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus to build up the kingdom. And then they sail home from Antioch. And he spent some time there in Antioch. But then he starts traveling and preaching again. Like It's like he gets home and he's like, he can't sit still anymore. He, he used to have a, a regular life, but now his life is preaching, period. It's what he's dedicated to. So he takes off again on, on another mission. Eventually he ends right back up into the city of Corinth where he spent a year and a half and now he spends two more years there, one of his longest stints. 
Um, and people become so converted in the city of Corinth that they can take handkerchiefs that Paul had had and the, the people who are sick use these handkerchiefs as a point of focus for their faith and they're blessed and the diseases depart from them, the evil spirits go out of them. Now, some who are not Christians start to see the success Paul has at healing people. And so there's some Jews who go about trying to drive out evil spirits by invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are demon-possessed. They would say things like, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, some of these guys who are doing these are, are seven sons of a guy named Skeva. He's one of the, the chief priests in this area of Corinth. But when these guys who don't believe in Jesus, don't know Jesus, don't follow or listen to Paul, try and use it as a shortcut to cast out the evil spirit. I love this. The evil spirit vocalizes through this person it's possessed. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Oh, that's creepy, right? And then the man who is possessed by the evil spirit, leaps on them, beats the crap out of them, tears their clothes off of them so that these fakers run out of the house naked and wounded. I, I'm a bad person. I find it hilarious. <laughs> it's crazy. Like you just can't fake it, right? Paul's being able to do it with a handkerchief. They can't do it because they don't believe there's no actual genuine connection. And, and if, as people hear this story, um, Paul and his message of Jesus Christ are magnified. More people believe they leave some of their uh, other practices that, that weren't getting them far and they decide to convert. So around the same time, Paul decides that it's about time for him to go to Jerusalem and, and to kind of to go back to the, the homeland of the gospel, right? And he plans on making a bunch of stops along the as they go. So they take off and they start preaching along the way. When they stop in Ephesus, things get a little bit sideways as they do now and then with Paul. Um, and so Ephesus, in Ephesus, there's this world famous, huge temple built to the goddess Diana. And originally it's the goddess Artemis and then the Romans co-opted it and made it into a temple of Diana. Anyways, Diana is the hunter goddess who oversees childbirth. So it's pretty common to buy an amulet with Diana's image to ensure safe delivery in a time where both infant and mother mortality rate is super high. Well, Paul and his homies are preaching that there's no need for these amulets. And some of the amulet makers, silversmiths, are, are beginning to take a hit on their income. So one of these amulet makers, one of these silversmiths is a guy named Demetrius. And he gets angry and he gets a bunch of his other friends angry and they start a riot and they grab a few of Paul's traveling companions, Macedonians to us, uh, Macedonians, they're Greeks to us. And remember, we're talking there in Turkey by now. And so it's easy to see that these Macedonian guys don't fit in. And so they grab them to the amphitheater and just go crazy chanting, great is Diana. Great is Diana over and over. Kind of like a soccer match, right? Now, Paul wants to go into the amphitheater and his friends are like, no, you are like pouring gasoline on a fire and right now we need water. 
Fortunately, um, for the people who have been grabbed, the magistrate in Ephesus is a sane guy. Uh, They get this magistrate out of whatever meeting he's in, and he comes down to the amphitheater, gets them to stop chanting for a second, and he says, listen, guys, Diana's not going anywhere. If you have a problem, a real legitimate problem, go to the cops. But other than that, go home, you dopes. And fortunately, his authority um, and sanity win the day. They release the captured missionaries and Paul uh, continues his slow roll down to Jerusalem, stopping at a bunch of cities, including Philippi, where he was beat for casting the spirit of Python out. And now there's a, a thriving Christian community there. And as he's there, he, he's giving a speech and he speaks, speaks from dinner time clear till midnight. And there's one guy named Eutychus who's listening to his speech and he's speaking just for hours and he falls asleep. The problem is he was sitting up in the upper chamber in a window. And and honestly, I don't blame him. Seriously, our talks are so long and boring and Paul is just going on and on. But he falls asleep and he falls from the third loft and it looks like he's dead. But Paul embraces him and says don't worry, there's life in him. And then Paul keeps talking until the break of day. He keeps going for like six more hours. The stamina to talk that long and the stamina to listen, I don't don't know. But fortunately, Eutychus is alive. They're comforted and Paul and his companions take off. More cities, et cetera, et cetera. And as we're going along, we get this constant stream of people telling Paul it's a bad idea to go to Jerusalem. He ignores them. Luke sides with Paul, which is not shocking, but I'm not convinced Paul had to go to Jerusalem. I think he's stubborn and I think it gets him into trouble. I think it's going to get him in trouble too. That doesn't mean God doesn't use the experience But it doesn't also mean that it has to happen this way that it's going to happen. It doesn't mean that Paul has to go to Jerusalem. After a bunch of warnings, Paul ends up in Jerusalem anyway. He meets with the the church leaders there in Jerusalem. And basically, they say the same thing that everyone along the journey has said. They're like, people are going to wig out when they hear you are here. So they convince Paul to go to the temple and to to purify himself of this Nazarite vow. They want to show him as someone who is completely an Orthodox Jew, which in his mind he is. Um, But I don't know that he thinks that this matters as much as everybody else thinks it matters. And anyways, he, he goes to the temple and it just so happens that there are some Jewish pilgrims there in the temple from Ephesus the town where he has preached for years among the Gentiles. And these guys from Ephesus immediately assume the worst, thinking that Paul has brought Gentiles into the sacred space of the temple. Here's why. They had seen him earlier that week in the city of Jerusalem with a non-Jew Ephesian, and they assume Paul has brought this non-Jew and other non-Jews into the temple. We are all like this to a certain degree. We all assume the worst case scenario. 
which again may have helped us survive in ancient times, but it's not so helpfully now because statistically speaking, it is almost never the worst case scenario. This doesn't stop them though from assuming the worst. They grab Paul, they drag him out of the temple, they shout for everybody that this guy has defiled the temple by bringing a non-Jew into the temple and that he's worthy to death and they're going to kill him. Seeing the upheaval in this square, the chief captain of the Roman soldiers here in the city, basically the police captain, sends down some soldiers to rescue Paul and drag him out of this. He's like, you just can't be murdering people in the street in front of me. I'm right here. And the, the chief poli- the police captain is like, what the heck is going on here? And people are shouting all sorts of chaotic nonsense. It's a mob after all. And the, the chief of police just is like, fine. And he takes Paul into the fortress. As they're climbing the stairs in the fortress, Paul says, can I talk to you for a minute? And the chief is like, depends. Can you speak Greek? Yes, of course. It's Paul after all. And then the cop says, aren't you the Egyptian guy that started a riot that got all those people killed a few months ago? And Paul's like, no, I'm a Roman citizen from Tarsus. Just let me talk to these people and we can clear things up. And the chief, willing to give it a go, lets him to speak. So Paul stands on the wall of the fortress to this huge group uh, of Jews gathered for a holiday celebration. And he starts speaking Aramaic to the crowd. And Paul is quick, man. He goes from Latin, Greek to Aramaic, one, two, three, all in a row. Just fluently, very bright guy. But he's just so bold speaking to this audience. And if you thought he came on strong up to this point, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till next time. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.